dear congregation, from the earliest times in the church, the church uh, Christians have always understood prophecy and especially fulfilled prophecy to be an argument for the truth of the Christian religion. And it's often been used that way right from the start, from the very earliest times of church history, you'll find Christians arguing that the prophecies in the, New Test- or in the Old Testament were fulfilled, and many of them remarkably fulfilled. And therefore, this shows us uh, the omniscience, right? The all-knowing character of our God, that he can uh, give us these predictions and show us that his, uh, he speaks the truth by bringing these predictions to pass, that they are fulfilled, that what God said was going to happen actually happened. Well, that's really a miracle then, isn't it? And prophecy is just that. Prophecy is a miracle. Prophecy is a miracle. A prophecy, fulfilled prophecy, is not possible if there was not a God in heaven. In a secular worldview, there is no such thing as prophecy. When secular people read the Bible, they assume that prophets like uh, the book of Daniel and the passage we're going to read tonight uh, happened, that they were written after the events that they prophesied. Because, of course, a secular person has no religion and therefore has no belief in God and therefore cannot believe in a miracle and therefore cannot believe in prophecy and especially fulfilled prophecy. But prophecy is a wonder and it's beautiful to see and I would like to show you that this evening because the prophecy that we have given us here in Zechariah chapter 9, it's difficult to read that chapter, isn't it? It's tough to know what all those things exactly are. I'd like to try to explain some of it as we go. But what you have here is a prophecy that was fulfilled in the conquest of Alexander the Great. Probably no person in history less deserved the title the Great. He was a thug who killed and burned and destroyed. But at any rate, so it is, Alexander the Great, he conquered the Persians. And again, I don't have a map here tonight, but if you can kind of picture in your mind's eye the north of Palestine, the north of Palestine, where today we have uh, the nation of Lebanon, then in that country, in that area there, a terrific battle took place. Alexander the Great was successful, and he proceeded on his conquest to go south. He went down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to these cities, one by one, to neutralize these cities so that the Persian army could not be re uh, equipped by, from the sea. Now, so the secular, or so the uh, history books tell us these things. And you can read those in a variety of different sources. But now let's turn to the Word of God, dear congregation, and see what the Word of God says about this. So in Zechariah chapter 9, if you would turn there with me, please. In Zechariah chapter 9, and we begin by reading about the burden of the Word of the Lord. Now, the burden was what the prophet received. It was the word from God, and it was a burden. It weighed on him. He, he was under pressure, as it were, to deliver this word. And here it comes. It's a burden, a word of the Lord for Hadrach and Damascus. And when it says Damascus shall be the rest thereof, that means that what the prophet is prophesying from God, of course, will come to rest. It will terminate. In other words, it's going to be about Damascus. And Hadrach, it's going to come to rest there. The prophecy is going to be 
spoken to those nations of Hadrach and Damascus. When the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord, and Hamath or Hamath also shall border thereby Tyre and Sidon, though it be very wise. So this is a prophecy of God of what takes place. Damascus, again, is in that north part of Lebanon. And the prophecy of God is now directed to that country and especially the people that are within that country. And the eyes of Israel are toward the Lord to see what's going to happen. Here's this juggernaut, this army of Alexander the Great, which appears to be utterly unstoppable. Is this going to be the end of Israel again? The eyes of Israel are toward the Lord. Now notice what it says about Tyre and Sidon in verse 2. Though it be very wise. You know, uh, dear friends, that the cities of Tyre and Sidon were renowned in the ancient world for their wealth. These were merchants of the sea, right? They were Phoenicians and they went out into the Mediterranean Sea and they carried on a very lucrative trade and they became very wealthy and this city became very wealthy. And in fact, you find in Scripture that Tyre and Sidon are often referred to in this respect. I turn to Isaiah 23 and verse 3 where it says, And by great waters the seed of Sihor, the harvest of the river, is her revenue. And she, that is Tyre and Sidon, she is a mart of nations. And by that, the M-A-R-T, the word mart, means a merchant. These are the merchants of the nations. These are the business people who are carrying on the trade back and forth on the Mediterranean Sea. She is the mart of the nations, says Isaiah in Isaiah 23 and verse 3. And that's what we read in our chapter as well. In verse 3, uh, in verse 2, we already read, though it be very wise, they're very shrewd businessmen, they carry on a shrewd trade with all the nations. But then in verse 3, continue, and Tyrus, or Tyre, did build herself a stronghold and heaped up silver as the dust and fine gold as the mire of the streets. And that again is in perfect keeping with what we know from other histories, that the cities of Tyre and Sidon were fabulously wealthy. Fabulously wealthy. Well, we also read in verse 3 that Tyre did build herself a stronghold. Now, every rich country knows, right, that as soon as you become rich, you become a target. And other nations, equally strong, maybe more strong, are going to swoop in and try to take that wealth for themselves. And so you need a military. You need a stronghold. You need a wall. And that's what Tyre did. Tyre built up itself a stronghold. Well, the problem was that many years previous to this, the king Nebuchadnezzar had come and had broken down that wall. And the people of Tyre, after having been conquered and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, realized that they needed something better. And this is one of the amazing feats of history. The, Tyre, the, the people of Tyre, there was an island some distance off the coast of the main city of Tyre, and they moved the entire city of Tyre to this island. And they built around this island a massive wall, a massive fortification that was utterly impregnable in their own mind. And they left the old city, it was called Old Tyre, to its ruins. And of course, some people lived there still, but by and large, the city moved itself to this island. So now it was surrounded by water, 
as well as surrounded by what they understood to be an impregnable wall. And that's what we have in our text here. Again, think of this prophetically. Tyre did build herself a stronghold and heaped up silver as the dust. Well, then we come to verse 4. Behold, the Lord will cast her out, and he will smite her power in the sea, and she shall be devoured with fire. Again, congregation, it's almost unbelievable to imagine these things, that Alexander the Great was so filled with ambition that when he came down the coast of Palestine there on the Mediterranean Sea, right, he came to Sidon, and the city uh, put up very little resistance. But when he came to the city of Tyre, they laughed at him. They scoffed at Alexander the Great. Ha! You'll never be able to get into our city. You'll never be able to get access to our wealth because after all, now we're out on this island fortress and we are utterly untouchable. And they scoffed at Alexander the Great. Well, Alexander the Great did the unthinkable. And again, it's almost unimaginable that this happened. But I would encourage you, if you have a map or if you go to Google Maps even, you can actually look at the city of Tyre and you'll see that there's actually a peninsula there. And what Alexander the Great did was he built a land bridge. He literally took the ruins of old Tyre and anything else that he could find and built a bridge out to this island, which is a staggering feat. Uh, if I remember correctly, it's almost a mile out in the, in the water. And he built this land bridge out to the Tyre. And finally, after uh, it took him over a year, so we're told, he finally was able to gain access to the city and he burned it to the ground. Behold, the Lord will cast her out, says the prophet in verse 4. I would like to stop right there for just a minute and make a little note here about our doctrine of providence. Because when we look at this verse, we could say, well, wasn't it Alexander the Great who threw out the Tyrian people? This verse says that the Lord cast her out. Well, this is how we understand providence, right? That God works through men. This is what maybe you've heard the word concurrence, right? That men act, women act, and God acts through them. This is how we got the Bible, right? The Bible is written by David and Matthew and John and the rest of the authors of Scripture, right? And yet it was God who, super, who, who oversaw the whole thing and who worked through these men, through these writers, to bring the Word of God to us. So we can say that the Bible, this particular passage, was written by Zechariah. But it's just as true to say this book was written by God. Both of those things are completely true. That's how our Reformed understanding of providence is. And we see that in verse 4, don't we? Behold, the Lord, by means of Alexander the Great, will cast her out, and he will smite her power in the sea. Well, enough on that then. So our doctrine of providence. But let's move back then to the text here. We see that Alexander the Great continues to move. And in verse 5, Ashkelon shall see it and fear. After all, if Alexander the Great was able to take Tyre, these other cities have no chance. Gaza also shall see it. And again, if you look on a map, you'll see that these are cities of the Philistines that are right, go south down the border of the Mediterranean Sea. Gaza also shall see it and be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for her expectation, shall be ashamed. They'll realize when they see what Alexander did to Tyre that they have no chance. Their expectation shall be ashamed. The king shall perish from Gaza and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. And no longer will there be Philistines in Ashdod, right? God will, in verse 6, cut off the pride of the Philistines, but a mixed race of people will live there. No longer Philistines, 
But people of all different races and ethnicities will live in that city because Alexander will, will, will take it and will take control of it. And will, many of the Philistines, the pride of the Philistines, will be destroyed. Not all of the Philistines, mind you, right? The pride of the Philistines will be destroyed. Well, this is Alexander. And one more thing about Alexander then, and that's down in verse 8. Because naturally we're thinking, remember in verse 1, we saw that the eyes of all Israel were on the Lord. What is the Lord doing here? What is Alexander the Great? How far down here is he going to come? Is he going to come to Jerusalem? Notice in verse 8, and I will encamp about mine house, that is Jerusalem, because of the army, because of the army of, of Alexander, because of him that passeth by, and because of him that returneth, and no oppressor shall pass through them, that is through Jerusalem, any more. For now have I seen with my eyes. In congregation, it's also a well-documented fact of history that when Alexander the Great conquered those Philistine cities on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, he visited Jerusalem. But he did not conquer it. The priests of Jerusalem, were told, actually welcomed him into the city. And Jerusalem was spared. Alexander the Great, for whatever reason, Well, not whatever reason, right? We know why. Because God overruled all these events. He did not conquer Jerusalem. There's a rather humorous story that Alexander the Great actually went into the temple. This is not true, actually. But he actually went into the temple, and the the priests of the temple actually pointed out to Alexander the prophecies about him. And, of course, Alexander the Great was very flattered by that, right, when he saw how even Israel's God had prophesied about him coming. Now, there's probably no truth to that story at all, but it's just kind of interesting. But, what's not, but, but what is true is that Jerusalem was not conquered by Alexander the Great. He did not destroy it. He did not burn it to the ground. It was spared in perfect keeping with what we're told here in verse 8, that God would encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by. And that's exactly what happened. Alexander the Great passed by Jerusalem. He paid it a visit, but he did not destroy it. Well, so much for the prophecies of Alexander as it's given us here in this prophecy. But I want to focus especially now on my second point, dear friends, on God's dealings with the Philistines. With the Philistines. Now the Philistines were the sworn enemies of Israel. You might think of the Philistines as the Taliban, Hamas. They are the sworn enemies of Israel. They hated Israel just as these terrorist groups do today. And Israel hated them. But isn't it astonishing what we read? We read in verse 6, right, that the pride of the Philistines would be cut off by Alexander and destroyed by God. But when we come to verse 9, verse verse 7, sorry. So right after verse 6, you'll notice that it says, I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. But let's read verse 7 now. And I will take away his blood out of his mouth. And the Hebrew word there, dear friends, is is very violent. I will snatch away, I will tear away his blood out of his mouth. That is, the bloody meat that he's eating. I will tear the bloody meat out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth. And if I can pause right there, you, you might think then that you're going to read next that God will destroy them utterly or cast them out and wipe them out. But isn't it astonishing what we read? But he that remaineth... Right? The pride of the Philistines was cut off, but he that remaineth, even he, 
even these Philistines, shall be for our God. Now, congregation, that's astonishing. For our God means in relationship to God. The, the, the word is used elsewhere as being in covenant with God. For our God means bonded together with God in a relationship of covenant and friendship. These Philistines, and notice the text says, even he, well, that's just unbelievable, not the Philistines. Oh, yes, even they, says the text, shall be for our God, and he shall be as a governor in Judah, and Ekron as a Jebusite. Now, why does it say here as, as, a, as a Jebusite? Remember that the Jebusites were those who were living in Jerusalem prior to the time when David conquered it. But what happened to the Jebusites? What, do we hear of them ever again, or were they completely destroyed? Well, they were not completely destroyed. In fact, if you remember back when David uh, was being punished by God, you'll remember the plague came upon Jerusalem, and David was sent to the floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Arana was a Jebusite, which means that the Jebusites that remained after David conquered them in battle were absorbed, as it were, into Israelite society and became part of the covenant people of God. But now our text is saying that not just the Jebusites are being brought into the people of God, but, no, it can't be, not the Philistines. Yeah, the Philistines. God says they will be for our God. They will become like the Jebusites. They will be absorbed into Israelite society. They will come under the covenant of God. They will come under all the covenant blessings and mercies of God. They will be saved people. Their sins forgiven. They will be given access to the temple of God and the sin offering. And their sins will be forgiven and they will be adopted into God's family. That's why I entitled the sermon tonight, dear friends, Salvation for Philistines. Salvation for Philistines. And that's really what we read here. And you can see more about this in verse 7, or at the beginning of verse 7, how God will do this, that he will snatch away the bloody meat out of his mouth. Even violently, God, will, God will, will, will grab their sins away and bring them into the ranks of his people. Furthermore, we read in verse 9 that God will come. God will come. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon a donkey. Now, a donkey was not a war animal. Riding on a horse was a war animal. Chariots were war instruments of war, but not a donkey. A donkey was a messenger, uh, just a general messenger, or even a messenger of peace. And that's what we have here, that here comes the king. Here comes the great king, God himself, riding to his people. But he has salvation in his hands. He has justice in his hands. He's lowly. He's not carrying a flashing sword riding on a white stallion. He's on a donkey. He's coming with peace. He's coming on a mission of salvation. And then verse 10, we read what he does. He cuts off the chariot from Ephraim. In other words, he destroys the weapons of war and the horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow, that is the bow and arrow, shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the heathen. That's astonishing, isn't it, to read that? You wonder how a Jew would have read this. I can't imagine a Jew would have read this with so much joy. 
They were not terribly well disposed towards their Gentile neighbors, and especially not towards the Philistines. But this is God, my friends. The Jews might want war, but God brings peace and salvation. He comes riding on a donkey to to destroy the implements of war. And verse 11, As for thee also by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. Even those who are captive, even those who are prisoners, uh, even those of the Jewish people who are still in captivity, by the blood of thy covenant, by the blood of the covenant that God made with his people throughout all the, the ages of Israelite history, God will bring them out of that pit, out of that captivity, out of that bondage wherein is no water. It's a hopeless bondage. When the Israelites were in exile, God will bring them back. There were still some in exile even yet. Some had returned, but some were still in exile. And God says he's going to bring them back by the blood of thy covenant. Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. Well, there's the text congregation, the prophecies of Alexander the Great and God's dealings with the Philistines. Let's make some points of application on this striking chapter of Scripture. And the first point I want to make this evening is this. We see in this passage what sin is. In the first place, we see what sin is. And now I'm focusing on that verse 7 again. Because I noticed that the bloody meat, which was sinful, they were not to eat blood, was in his mouth. And there's meaning to that, isn't there? That oftentimes sin is something we savor. It's something that we not just have in our hands, but it's something that we have in our mouth. We relish it like a piece of good food. That's what sin is. But something else, not just that we relish sin, but we learn what sin is from verse 11. We learn that sin is a pit wherein is no water. Sin is a captivity. It is a bondage. And there's nothing satisfying about it. It might be in our mouth. We might savor it. But there's no water there. It does not satisfy your hunger. It does not take away your thirst. And that is what sin is. The life of a Philistine cannot satisfy. Philistines with the sin in their mouth will be disappointed. We sing in our Psalter, Apart from thee, we long and thirst and not can satisfy. Be assured of that, dear friend, this evening, that a life of sin is separated from God and will bring you no joy and happiness in this life, but will bring you finally to a miserable end. So that in the first place, sin cannot satisfy. And second, we see how God delivers Philistines from sin's power. And again here, I see almost a uh, and, uh, Alexander the Great, as he moves from, from, from the north and he moves south, city by city, falls under his conquering armies. And in the same way, congregation, the Spirit of God who works through people, and I know I'm using Alexander the Great here as, as kind of a, a type of the Spirit of God. He moves from person to person, from heart to heart. And what does he do? He snatches the sin out of their mouth. I will grab the bloody meat from their mouths, says one translation of this verse, and snatch the detestable sacrifices from their teeth. Many people of God can testify to this. Not all, 
But many of the people of God can testify that God saved them sometimes in a very violent way. That he snatched the sin out of their hands, snatched the sin out of their mouths, and brought them to Christ. Now, as I said, God does not save all his people that way. I wouldn't even say that's the normal way that God saves his people. But it is the way that's given us here in this text of God snatching the sin from these Philistines and bringing them to himself. But we can think of men like the Apostle Paul, right? How violently God had to work on that man. How violently God had to snatch his pride away from him and humble him. And there on the, on the outskirts of Damascus to finally break him and to bring him to that point where he would trust in Christ. We can think of Manasseh, where God took Manasseh into captivity, sent another army to conquer his city and to take him prisoner. We can think of St. Augustine. We don't really need to call him St. Augustine, but we often do. But Augustine too, I don't know if you've read his story, but the violent anguish that man went through as God worked in his life to bring him to an end of his delight in sin. And Augustine, especially if you read his story in the Confessions, I highly recommend it to you. If you need help finding it, I'm happy to help you with that. But if you read how Augustine savored the life of sin that he was, he was living with another woman and how he savored that and how he said, God, convert me, but not yet. It was too, he relished that sin too much, but God snatched it out of his mouth in a violent way. Congregation, I was astonished to read just recently about two men whom God saved. I want to share this story with you. But the first man was a man named Jacob DeShazer. After Pearl Harbor was bombed, the U.S. planned a revenge mission on Tokyo, and they sent B-25 bombers into Tokyo to bomb Tokyo. Of course, it did very little damage, but it was just sending a message, right? A revenge message. And Jacob DeShazer was one of the bombardiers on uh, on those flights. And he burned with hatred against the Japanese people. He hated them. Jacob DeShazer was actually, uh, he crashed. He was captured by the Japanese. But in prison, God converted him and took away his hate. And again, I'm, I'm greatly reducing the story. Again, it's such a wonderful story to read. If you want to read it, I can send you that to you. But what a marvelous act of God's mercy that he snatched the sin and the hate out of this man's mind and brought him to Christ. And Jacob DeShazer, after the war, actually went back to Japan and did mission work there. And now, congregation, for the even more astonishing story. You remember the the attack on Pearl Harbor? The attack on Pearl Harbor was led by a man named Fushida. That's a Japanese name. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing it correctly. But Fushida was the lead pilot into Pearl Harbor. And after the war, Fushida had been captured by the Americans. He had... He had talked to a lot of Americans, and, and it's, it's a, one of the central uh, planks of Japanese religion is this idea of revenge. In fact, they have a saying that if you, if you die, if somebody kills you, you should come back to life seven times again to get revenge on the person who killed you. This idea of revenge burns in them so strongly. And Fushida had a problem because in his experience on the prison this woman named i know this gets a little complicated sorry but it's an astonishing story this woman named peggy had come to the prison to give them food to give them gifts to make their life a little easier to bring them little books to bring them little gadgets that they could use to pass the time and fushida 
this was, this was impossible to him to understand. How could this woman do that? How could this woman, who was the enemy, bring them these gifts, bring them these little things of food? And gradually God worked in the heart of this man to show him the peace and the mercy and the joy of Jesus Christ. And Fushida became a Christian. He came to Christ and was saved. And now the most astonishing story of all, these two men, Jacob de Shazer and Fuchida, they met in Japan. And congregation, would you look with me at the picture that the history books tell us? That on the floor of Jacob de Shazer's apartment, these two men who burned with hatred towards each other bowed their knees and prayed to God for the conversion of Japan. Salvation for Philistines. Isn't that an astonishing story? Can you see those two men, the lead pilot into Pearl Harbor? Not just one of the pilots, the lead pilot. And this man, Jacob DeShazer, under the blood of Christ, bowing on on that apartment floor with tears and giving thanks to God for his mercy to them, for snatching the sin out of their mouths. I share that story with you because... It's such a remarkable example of how God delivers Philistines from the power of sin. Well, congregation, I move to my third point of application. That is, why does God save Philistines? Well, we are told that as well, aren't we? In verse 11, as for thee also by the blood of thy covenant. The covenant of grace that God had made with his people of Israel was sealed repeatedly in Israelite religion by the shedding of blood. This was how God was reconciled to his sinful people. This was how God could be in covenant with his sinful people because that covenant had blood. That blood was spilled and that blood testified that God's justice and his anger against the sin of his people was satisfied in the death of a substitute, in the death of the animal, But of course, we know that that pointed to another. By the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners. This congregation is why God saves Philistines. We talked about how God saves them. But now we talk about why. And it's the blood of the covenant. It is not the Philistines. It is not the Israelites. It is not anything they do. It is only and entirely the blood of the covenant. The blood by which that covenant of grace is sealed and made firm and steadfast to all the people of God. I think, too, congregation, that in verse 12, when we read about the prisoners of hope, these prisoners who are hoping for release from bondage, that the basis of that hope is the blood of that covenant. Oh, what a beautiful picture that is, dear congregation, that when we look back and we see the ways of God in our life, that when we trace how he saved us, how he snatched the sin out of our mouths. However that may have happened, whether it was in a violent way, as I've shared with you here, or whether it was in a more gentle and a more gradual way, they're both the same. There's no difference between the two in terms of being saved. But still, congregation, we can trace back the hand of God to the blood of the covenant, to the blood of the substitute who died on the cross and shed his blood for the salvation of Philistines. Congregation, I don't need to say to you this evening that you all are Philistines. Morally and spiritually, 
the members of the monarch free reformed church and yes even the preacher in the pulpit here today is a philistine by nature we hate the people of god and we hate the god of his people that is our condition that is our condition philistines are you willing to own that this morning this evening are you willing to own that this evening that you are a philistine and that god could righteously have condemned you forever for the sin that's in your mouth the sin that's in your hands that's where God brings his people, dear friends. That's where God brings each one of us. And if we're Christians today, I don't ask when did that happen for the first time in your life. I ask when was the last time it happened. May I ask this evening, congregation, was it today? Was it today that you bowed before God and said, Lord, I'm a Philistine. I'm a sinner before you. And it's only by the blood of that covenant that I have any ground to hope that I can be released from the bondage of sin, that I won't be cast away forever as I certainly have deserved. This is the blood of the covenant congregation because it gives hope for Philistines. It gives hope for you and gives hope for me. And that's why I can say to you, congregation, that there's room in this blood for you. There's room in this blood for the greatest sinner here, now, I don't know what you may have done in your life. I don't need to know. But I can tell you there's room in this blood. There's room in this covenant for you. And that this evening, if you have to say, I don't know this covenant, and I am not a Christian, and I'm not terribly interested in being a Christian, I ask you to consider, my friend, I ask you to consider the blood of the covenant, that there is room in it for you, that nothing you may have done in your life can keep you from this Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's the precious gospel that if you're a Philistine here, I've already told you you are one, whether you realize it or not, but I pray this evening, congregation, that you'd be willing to own it, that you'd be willing to say, yes, that's my state. I'm a Philistine, but I'm rescued by the blood of the covenant, by the blood of the substitute that seals God's covenant of grace to me so that I can be certain of the mercy and of the favor of God in my life. Oh, what a blessing that is. Oh, what a blessing it is to know that we have such a sure foundation that the blood of that covenant, do you remember what happened on the Passover day? Do you remember that blood was spread there on the, on the doorpost? And there came the avenging angel, right? And there came the angel, and when he saw the blood, he passed over. That's what happens in your life, congregation, when we put our trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. When we come under that covenant, under that blood, the avenger of death, God's angel of justice passes over us because he sees the blood. Well, I have one more point to make this evening. And it comes from verse 12 where we read about a stronghold. I want to talk to you about two strongholds this evening and to end the sermon by thinking about this with me. Because, you know, the people of Tyre had a stronghold and they thought it was impregnable. They looked at their walls. They looked at the vast stretch of water between them and the mainland. And even an army like Alexander the Great, they scoffed and laughed. Ha! What's this fool think he's going to do? Even if he could get across the water, he can't possibly break into these walls. And dear, dear friends, listen to me now. 
because that first shovel full of dirt went in the water. And then some more stone. And don't think for a minute that the people, in fact, the history books tell us this, that they were watching. And at first they laughed. They laughed as they were entertained at the folly of this man who threw sand and stones and sticks in the water to try to make this bridge to the city, to the island city, to the island fortress. Until it started getting a little closer. And maybe their laughter at one point began to turn off. And as the avenging justice of God in the person of Alexander the Great began to draw closer and closer and closer. What are we going to do? He's getting closer. Until he got very close. And suddenly they become anxious. They become alarmed. He, he's, he's actually doing it. He's actually building a land bridge to the city until finally he got to the walls. And now they began to be alarmed. And their laughter turned to terror as the army of Alexander began to make its way over the walls and through the walls and the city was put to the sword. But my dear friend, listen to me this evening. If you're not under the blood of that covenant, I ask you to listen. No, I don't ask you to listen. I ask you to see I ask you to look because the avenging justice of God is step by step drawing closer to you. Now, I don't know who you are this evening, but I ask you to listen carefully because that bridge is drawing closer. Maybe you laugh at it now, but it's coming closer and closer, every day closer. Today it's closer than it was yesterday. And the wheels of God's justice may grind slowly but they grind surely and they're approaching closer and closer. Dear children, dear young people, think about that. Think about that and how God still stands here in the preaching of the gospel and points you to the blood of the covenant and says, come, come, come under the blood of Jesus Christ and you can find a full forgiveness here. You can be reconciled by the blood of this mediator to a holy God. But the justice of God comes closer, closer. Maybe some of you are delaying. Maybe some of you are thinking, I've got time. Well, friend, I can't tell you how close that land bridge is to you yet. I don't know. But it could be this week that it finally reaches the walls of your soul. And then it's too late. Forever too late. I urge you, dear friends, to flee to the blood of the covenant. Because that's the other stronghold I want to speak about this evening. The stronghold of Tyre, the stronghold of this world, whatever walls you may put up, they're going to fall. But the blood of that covenant, why, just a lamb, it appears so weak, so vulnerable, but the blood of that covenant can never fail. And that is a stronghold that death itself cannot break through. The justice of God passes over and you are safe. My friend, no matter how young you may be this evening, no matter how old, no matter what sins you may have committed, I can assure you in the name of God Almighty that if you are under the blood of that covenant, you are as safe as if you were in heaven already.
In fact, the Gospels teach us, right, that we have eternal life the moment we believe in Christ. Not that we will have it, but we have it already. Which stronghold this evening? Which stronghold have you taken refuge in? I want to know. I want to know from each person. I want to take you by the shirt. And I want to say, friend, think. Which stronghold are you in? Will it last? Will that bridge finally reach you? And will it be too late? Or will you take refuge under the blood of the covenant? And then you can be not a prisoner anymore, but you can have a certain hope that can never fail you. Congregation, I pray that God will bind these words upon your heart and bring you for the first time or by renewal into that blessed covenant, sealed by blood, a stronghold that will never fail you. May God grant it for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray.